one day in the metaverse, urban planners will model traffic solutions to help decrease commute times. The metaverse may be virtual, but the impact will be real. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pain Week Summary Show with two hosts from the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Dr. Mark Garofoli from the Pain Pod joins forces with the public health pharmacist, Dr. Christina Madison at the Cosmopolitan Conference Center in Las Vegas. Pain Week remains the U.S. Pain Conference with the most expansive curriculum and is the favorite destination for frontline practitioners to enhance their competence in pain management. Be sure to share this episode with fellow practitioners and providers focused on patient pain management needs. Hello, this is Dr. Christina Madison, founder and CEO of The Public Health Pharmacist and host of The Public Health Pharmacist podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I am here at Pain Week 2021, and I have uh, Dr. Herden, uh, who is here um, wanting to give his take on how Pain Week is going and just pharmacy involvement in pain management. We had an inspiring keynote address yesterday just talking about the convergence of um, the COVID-19 pandemic and the increase in the rates of substance use uh, disorders and uh, deaths. So with that, I will go ahead and let Dr. Herdun uh, tell us a little bit more about himself, his practice, and how he thinks Pain Week is going. Okay, thank you, Christina. First time uh, caller, long time listener. Um, so uh, it's good to, to uh, be here at Pain Week. It was really tragic that we weren't able to all come together last year. Uh, this is probably my eighth or ninth year of coming to this meeting. It's really nice to see all of uh, uh, my old colleagues here, and there's been some wonderful presentations. Uh, and it is unfortunate, you know, everybody here is, is masked and social distancing and going through normal. Uh, normal COVID precautions, which does take a little bit away from the meeting, but people are here, they're learning about what they can do to try to address the ongoing chronic pain problem in the U.S. And, uh, you know, COVID has definitely put a strain on uh, practitioners and their ability to actually evaluate patients, to get them into the clinic, to provide them the care that they need. And uh, unfortunately, we're also seeing uh, sharp increases in the amount of uh, opioid use disorder diagnoses, uh, opioid-related overdose deaths over the past year, year and a half. And uh, it's, it's more important now than ever to make sure that, that we actually have a uh, role in, in, in making sure that we address uh, the unmet needs for pain patients, as well as for those who have developed unhealthy relationships with some of the opioids that we may be giving them for chronic pain. Um, and what I've, what I've been most uh, impressed with by Pain Week this year is actually their ability to bring the COVID pandemic and the issues that have been involved here to the forefront. There's been a whole host of different presentations on how 
COVID is impacting chronic pain. In fact, uh, one of my trainees and I are presenting uh, research here that we did uh, with a nationwide survey looking at the actual chronic pain impacts of long COVID syndrome that we'll be uh, showing as a poster this evening. So I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with your audience, Christina, and uh, hope I get to see more of you throughout the conference. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate what you're doing um, for other clinicians in the pain management space. And the fact that you are involving your trainees is amazing. So stay tuned for more commentary from Pain Week 2021. Very cool. Thanks. everyone, Dr. Christina Madison of the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network here at Pain Week 2021. Super excited to talk to the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, the man behind what else? The Pain Pod. Dr. Mark, talk to me. Welcome, everyone. As we always say, come one, come all to the pain pod. And thank you for that introduction, ma'am. Um, and let's not forget that it's uh, you are the public health pharmacist. You got to emphasize the right things, right? Uh, so everyone's having a phenomenal, safe time here at Pain Week 21, uh, as expected, because that's that's how Pain Week rolls, right? Uh, so we've all teamed up to uh, be live here and, and uh, provide this uh, for everyone to be listening to throughout the, uh, well, maybe years even. Uh, but we really wanted to interview, you know, the, the boots on the ground, frontline practitioners, researchers too, anybody who's ever here at Pain Week 21, you know, having a good time and advancing everything when it comes to patient care. Uh, so first and foremost here for our conversation at right now, uh, we have Mariana Ivanilo, uh, who comes to uh, the Las Vegas here with us, um, actually all the way from uh, the Windy City, Chicago. Uh, she's got some background within uh, managed care, quite the extensive background, actually. Uh, so we really want to kind of pick her brain as far as what, what her experience has been at Pain Week 21 thus far. Uh, so, so welcome, welcome, Mariana. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is a great pleasure for me. It's my first interview on the Pharmacy Podcast, so I'm very excited. It's also uh, my first uh, attendance here at the Pain Week. And uh, I am a pharmacist at a managed care field, and uh, I'm involved in the Controlled Substance Utilization Review Program at a major mail service pharmacy. And with the focus of pain and controlled substances, um, and uh, Pain Week uh, it has so far been a great experience. I'm learning a lot, not only from great uh, pharmacy presenters, but also uh, expanding my worldview in the medical field because um, from uh, physicians, psychologists, nurses. So this is a great experience. Um, and uh, I'm actually uh, here, uh, I find this conference an eye-opening experience, which helps me to actually think broader um, than just the set protocols or various clinical guidelines subscribed to. Um, and it helps me to understand as why to prescribers make certain decisions uh, to escalate or reduce opioid doses or add maybe other adjuvant treatments to patient medication regimens. And uh, I actually look at it from different perspectives, especially from my uh, experience in managed care as a clinical pharmacist, as well as my other interests in the pharmacy profession. 
Um, and as I often see prescriptions with high opioid doses and cocktails for treatment of many um, chronic pain diagnoses, um, the, this conference actually helps me to understand um, the bigger picture for these diagnoses and why physicians actually uh, make certain decisions um, in the diagnostic process as well as uh, treatment decisions. I, I just wanted to kind of maybe pause for just a second uh, so we can catch our breath here. Uh, obviously, you have so much knowledge and such an amazing perspective to give. And so I just want to kind of take a, a quick little breather and, and maybe focus um, and shift a bit. Um, you know, the keynote speaker last night was excellent and really um, talked about, you know, the intersection between multiple epidemics and pandemics. And I kind of just wanted to touch on that for just a minute. Obviously, Obviously, as my, you know, advocacy work for public health, and and really, you know, talk about you know how you see, you know, working boots on the ground. How how do you see, you know, sort of the convergence of you know the COVID nineteen pandemic and and the issues related to access to care, and then obviously, you know, those who are using substances, and then obviously the increase in the rates of deaths of substance related, um, you know, issues. Um, here in the United States. And so maybe I can, and, you know, maybe I just uh, turf this back to, to Dr. Mark here, uh, because I think that this is something that is, is really important, especially as you see the uh, increase in the advanced education um, and CE offerings that Pain Week is doing, which I know that you've been intimately involved in. Uh, wonderful points there. Uh, the, the keynote address uh, th this year at Pain Week 21, I, I actually got the, the opportunity to talk with Dr. Clark and Dr. Zakharoff uh, shortly afterwards, and I, and I really commended the two gentlemen um, along the way, and, and Dr. Ziegler, of course, too. The three of them were the overall keynote. And the things that they were going over were not only um, updates and really giving perspectives, but they were actually invigorating. And that is, uh, that's quite paramount these days because we, you know, it's a big message of do something. You know, we don't want to run in a circle, don't get me wrong. It's better to walk in a straight line and get somewhere, but do something. And everyone that comes here to Pain Week is literally doing something. Um, that, that keynote was phenomenal. Um, you know, I, I would even, you know, throw it back to, to Mariana to say, well, okay, well, the keynote was, was absolutely great. Uh, were there any other sessions that, um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the, the cocktails. Uh, you know, perhaps you came to Vegas and you're thinking about other cocktails, or maybe other people were, and, and you know, here it would be a little bit more so of like maybe sedative interactions that we're talking about, of course. But were there any sessions or, or speakers that really just got you thinking about things? Yeah, great point. Yes, actually, uh, yes, there are a couple of speakers, amazing, and among them are pharmacists. Uh, Cocktails are not a combination of opioids with other uh, medications that may uh, predispose patients to serious adverse effects. So, uh, so far, um, the session that really impressed me was this morning uh, by Dr. Timothy Atkinson's. Uh, it's like an alternative, I should say, kind of something that could be potentially alternative uh, to putting patients in opioids and other dangerous medications, maybe switch. 
from opioids to NSAIDs, or maybe a patient does not need to be started on opioid right away for certain chronic pain diagnosis. So maybe better start with NSAIDs. Um, there is also a um, session today by Dr. Garofoli about geriatric pain management, and especially in geriatric uh, field. Uh, these cocktails, uh, which I personally often see opioids, muscle relaxants, and benzodiazepines, they're especially dangerous and especially in elderly population. Uh, however, uh, we still see that and they're still being prescribed. So role, uh, our role as a pharmacist is to make these um, sound decisions and advise prescribers on the the, the potentially dangerous side effects. However, if the patient needs to be on these combinations, just maybe monitor uh, patients clo closer and educate them better. Um, I also see on the agenda uh, coming up other sessions, like on the muscle relaxants, which is close to my area of practice because, again, I see muscle relaxants are part of the cocktails that we often see. Um, and besides the uh, pharmacist pre uh, presenters, I found very interesting um, a session by um, Dr. Christo on the uh, complex regional pain syndrome, which is extremely complicated to treat. And I see this diagnosis very often um, when we review the opioid and chronic pain management through mail service pharmacy. Uh, and that's where I learned that how complex the whole pathophysiology and tre treatment options are and how we can better approach like from different perspective, uh, pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic interventions. I, I'm really happy that you mentioned uh, actually all of those great presenters. Uh, you mentioned Dr. Christo, and, and I'd, I'd want the audience to even know that uh, I was talking with him yesterday, and and I mentioned to him a, a thank you because uh, when when developing this thing we call the pain pod, he was actually an inspiration and a little bit of a help for talking through things. Because he actually has a show on Sirius XM, I believe it's every Saturday, uh, talking about pain management overall. Uh, there's really just such incredible, and, and thank you, Mariana, by the way, for the shout out for one of my talks earlier. Um, glad that was enjoyed. But, um, you know, many more coming, hopefully, for many. Uh, one of the other things, you know, when talking about amazing faculty that have been, have been and continue to be here at Pain Week, uh, you know, there, there's one of our, our, kind of our pain management heroes out there. Uh, I think everybody would know, Dr. Jeff Fuden. Uh, you know, Mary Hunter, earlier in, in one of my talks, you heard me say something to the tune of, you swear it was a podcast and not a CE, but, you know, if you have a healthcare professional license and a pulse, you know that an opioid interacts with a benzo, right? Um, well, if you have a healthcare license and a pulse, you probably know Jeff as well, right? Um, so my question to you, Ariana, is have you been able to find Foodin? It's the hashtag, find Foodin. Everybody's looking for Foodin. Have you been able to find Foodin? So um, I'm just going to interject here for a moment because I have not actually been able to find food in. And so I'm very upset about that um, as a newbie to Pain Week um, and just finding out how um, instrumental Dr. Foodin is to pretty much everything associated with this meeting. Um, I think it's kind of fantastic that we have um, have him here with us, even though he's not able to physically be with us. Yes, I was able to find Dr. Fudin actually twice here. The first time was uh, on my very first session uh, presented by Dr. Kaminik and Dr. Brooks. They brought in a huge cardboard cutout of Dr. Fudin's 
photo, so I got a chance to take a picture. So Dr. Garofoli and I, we actually took a picture. So that was amazing. And then there is another uh, big, the, the full body uh, cardboard uh, <laughs> cutout um, in the hallway that everybody could actually stop by and take a picture. So Wonderful. Well, you know, I kind of knew about the first one, so I was happy about the second one there for you too, Mariana. Um, so, you know, taking a big picture here too, uh, perhaps you've had time throughout this Pain Week 21 to, you know, take those reflection moments beyond the keynote even and, and you know, that whole take action approach. Um, something that I always uh, aim to and like to ask people, uh, you know, when we're talking on the Pain Pod, uh, and folks, you know, in the audience, you know what I'm going to ask, right? Uh, so, Mariana, how we're here for Pain Week 21. How would you define pain? This is a very uh, interesting question. Um, besides the physical um, injury, of the standard definition of pain as a physical injury, I personally think from my experience and from experience of other people um, for many years, pain has a lot of psychological factors and that are currently um, becoming more and more popular by a psychosocial model of pain. I think it's it's very valid because we're not only uh, looking treating treating pain as just you know one part of one injury it's the whole psychological aspect uh, that's involved uh, stress uh, psychological trauma that many many people go through while experiencing pain so um, and there actually I just attended a session uh, that addressed that it was a session by a um, clinical psychologist so where she went deeper into that bio, uh, bio um, psychosocial model of pain so yeah, I just wanted to maybe uh, piggyback on that for just a second. As somebody who, uh, you know, works with vulnerable populations, in particular um, those who identify in the LGBTQ space, um, we do see the utilization of things like trauma-informed care, especially because there is a lot of um, mental health challenges in that particular population, but also just understanding and coming from a place when you're treating patients that they may have experienced trauma and that that trauma directly impacts their um, their choices when it comes to who they go to for their health care needs and how they may be accessing the health care system, whether or not they may be in physical or emotional distress, distress, which may lead them to feel some sort of somatic pain. I do think that that is something that as healthcare professionals, we do need to do a better job of addressing. I don't know about you, pain potters, but I really appreciate having Dr. Madison here. Talk about perspective, right? All right, so I'm going to kick back to Mariani here for one final question. You all know what's coming. What is your favorite pain medication? Being a pharmacist who works mostly with um, controlled substances and in this case with opioid analgesics, I must admit that at this point my favorite is still opioid, but it is buprenorphine. <laughs> Ooh, did not expect that one. And the reason being is that it has um, so many uses in pain as well as in opioid use disorder treatment. So it's actually very promising uh, medication in this space and uh, it has little milder adverse effects than the rest of the uh, full 
um, what the other opioids like uh, full mu or op- mu opioid receptor agonists. So, and uh, lately, like in, in the past um, couple of years, I actually keep seeing more and more prescribers tapering patients off the full agonist to buprenorphine. And they say that it's actually promising uh, medication for the treatment of pain. Yeah, so I, I love that this is your favorite um, medication because uh, I, I work uh, with a behavioral health uh, center here in, in Las Vegas, and um, we talk a lot about medication-assisted treatment. And one of the things that I talk about with my students all the time is this concept of when you're looking at agonists versus antagonists, this thought process of are the lights on, are they dimmed, or are the lights off? And I like the fact that we can give a little mood light. I like the dim. What do you think? Definitely, definitely. I totally agree with you, Christina. And especially since I have my other interest in the treatment of opioid use disorder, and I'm glad to see that this drug actually helps people um, to be treated for um, opioid um, use. And now more and more uh, mid-level practitioners, like nurse practitioners and physician assistants, are now allowed to be prescribed. So now people will have access to more uh, prescribers. And and since we all know that buprenorphine um, or Suboxone uh, helps uh, people to st- or patients to stay away um, from opioids, from uh, misuse of opioids and uh, prevent their uh, relapse and uh, potentially overdose. So yes, I, I do believe this is a promising medication in this space. All right, I'm gonna throw the question back at you. What's your favorite drug of choice? Ooh, no one's ever actually asked a pain guy what, what his favorite is. My gosh, I never like to share opinions. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the biopsychosocial model that Mariana actually uh, eloquently talked about earlier. But the problem with that answer is that it's a cop-out because you asked what medication. Uh, And I would encourage viewers to to check out actually two of our previous episodes. It was Opioid Madness, part one and part two. Um, You might want to skip the part two if you want the answers, but check out part one and part two of Opioid Madness, finding the greatest opioid of all time. Um, I would really echo a lot of the words of what Mariana had mentioned as far as if you're going to pick something um, and you're in the opioid realm, currently with what's available, uh, buprenorphine has a lot of um, interesting aspects. It is perhaps the most misunderstood medication of the century for many, many factors. Um, Not positive, negative, not left or right, just misunderstandings as you you both were talking about earlier with the lights are on or off some people have disco lights i don't get it um uh, but that's the way it is with that um however uh what i'm actually going to do i'm going to say a temporary answer for my actual answer sorry it's long-winded uh but i'm going to say right now uh you know based on actually one of our previous episodes of covid or covid keto guido uh when i had my kidney stone what helped me at that time in my particular scenario was ketorolac uh, and just like my five-year-old would say, you know, what should they give when somebody's on the gurney and you got urological concerns? He's five. You know what his answer is? Ketorolac. So I'm going to go with that as my answer now. Ask me again in another year when we're here at Pain Week 2022. Maybe you'll get another answer. I don't know. 
that's your answer and you're sticking to it. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, It's been so enjoyable. And as a newbie to Pain Week, I will tell you, um, I have been thoroughly impressed with all of the offerings here. And then obviously as the public health advocate, um, it is wonderful to see conversations around stigma, access, um, social determinants of health, um, as well as possibility of discrimination, racism, and how all of that impacts our ability to provide meaningful and quality health care. So thank you guys both again, and stay tuned for more amazing interviews here at Pain Week 2021. Hello, Dr. Christina Madison here again at Pain Week 2021. I have an amazing opportunity to interview one of the many vendors that are here um, at the exhibit space. And so I'm going to go ahead and have Randy introduce himself and his product, which is pretty outstanding. And so I'll tell you uh, a little secret. Um, when I heard the name of this co- this company, it did make me feel very superhero-esque. So with that, I will go ahead and turn it over to Randy. Thanks. Um, so I'm not a superhero, definitely, but uh, I work for Thor Photo Medicine, and we make products that deliver a therapy called photobiomodulation. And so the basically the science is we deliver light of a certain color and certain power to stimulate the body's natural healing process. And so the company's called Thor. Thor's the god of thunder, lightning. That's the correlation. Our founder is a big superhero fan, Marvel Comics fan. And so that's where the name came from. And you guys can't see this, but he has an amazing mask on right now that's all superheroed up. So uh, with that being said, tell us a little bit more about sort of the foundation behind using this. And obviously, you know, being here at Pain Week, being in person, um, being able to be safe and and to really talk about, you know, access to care and care that is non-opioid, I think is extremely important. So do you want to just tell us a little bit uh, about your experience here at Pain Week and, and sort of the importance of this non-pharmacologic therapy. So what's been interesting to us is the the presence of the VA centers here. And obviously our veterans have a big problem around chronic pain, especially if they've come back from the battlefield with injuries um, or PTSD, so either psychological or physical. And what we found in the research with our our therapy, and the therapy has over 700 randomized clinical trials, 4,000 research papers written on the therapy. So it's it's not new, it's just um, uh, emerging as becoming more of a mainstream therapy. And the VAs that are using our equipment are doing that to relieve pain so that the their, their patients can take less drugs, um, less likelihood to even get on that path towards addiction, or if they already are on that path, sort of help them ease their, their way off of those drugs and find other alternative therapies to relieve that pain and stimulate the healing process. Yeah, I really love this concept of really empowering the the own body to help itself, right? So like kind of getting us over the hump. Um, we talked a tiny bit before we started this interview, you had mentioned, you know, things like ulcers or wound healing. And that's kind of, uh, you know, something that I did at the beginning of my career when I worked at a VA, when I did my training. And I just think how amazing this would have been for some of those decubitus ulcers and some of that wound healing and care that we did, especially in our spinal cord injury patients. Um, it would have been amazing to have this kind of modality available 
people. Can you talk about some of the other applications as far as like maybe with things like sports medicine? Yeah, so so with the athletic teams that we work with and the athletes in the NFL and the NBA, they deal with a lot of inflammation from overuse and overtraining. And so the ability to get back and practice again more aggressively, faster, is a huge issue for that population. So they use our products to stimulate that, that natural recovery process, but to make it happen faster so they can train harder and longer and more frequently. It's a huge advantage to the teams that, that use this uh, technology in their in their uh, sort of their recovery and treatment systems within their organizations. And then we go from something like sports performance, athletic recovery, flushing out the lactic acid that causes soreness, all the way to treatments that are um, preventing oral mucositis in people who are going through cancer therapies and getting radiation to their to their mouth. It's a very susceptible tissue. But the interesting thing is it's it sounds crazy to talk about going from sports performance to cancer therapy. But what our what our product does is it increases ATP, which is cellular energy, decreases inflammation, and allows the body's natural healing process or protective systems to, to function more, more readily. It's kind of like how a little kid who's four years old gets a cold and they're healed in three days and I get a cold and I'm out for two weeks. It's because those kids have so much cellular energy, they're so healthy, they recover and heal so much faster. And so we're really trying to stimulate that process at the cellular level to speed up that healing process. Yeah, that's really amazing how your product has such range, um, if that's a way that I could kind of word that uh, more succinctly. Uh, I'm curious as far as like access point, because obviously uh, as myself being a public health advocate, I'm always concerned about access to care and and who um, would be able to access this product. And, and if you have, you know, assistance programs for maybe those who have, um, you know, less resources or, I mean, obviously you mentioned that this is available at the VA, which is amazing, but um, can you talk a little bit about who can have access to your product? Sure, it's a it's an interesting question because we're an emerging therapy, so we're not we're not a huge company. We're not we don't have pharma budgets, and so the places where people have access to this therapy, like here in Las Vegas, uh, we have a customer called Compete Health and Wellness, and they do everything from cryotherapy to a therapy called PEMF to photobiomodulation, and it's a retail location set up more as a wellness facility than really a medical facility. So anyone. Can can walk in. Um, it's cash pay therapy. It's not reimbursed by insurance yet. We're working on that, but that's a long and, and um, sometimes painful process. Uh, but we're working on it to, to have that come through insurance. But most of the therapies uh, are delivered are cash pay by the by the patient. Or in some, if you're lucky enough to be in one of the VAs that has our therapy, um, Salt Lake City just got a bunch of new equipment at the Salt Lake City VA. We're really excited about that. Um, place and they're going to do some really interesting research as well. Uh, or um, certain hospitals, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, St. Jude Children's Hospital. These are the, the you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a smattering of places that's growing all the time. And that's really, as it comes to access, we're just trying to get the product in as many places as possible. So with that being said, how long have you guys been around? It sounds like you guys are doing quite a bit and, uh, and it sounds like maybe a short period of time. Well, Actually, I wish that was the case. So we've been around for about 20 years. Um, 
And the therapy was discovered in the late 60s. Uh, and so it's not, again, it's not new. It's just continuing to grow. Um, the, the, one of the stimulus for that is the biohacker community has really adopted red light therapy as sort of an anti-aging um, human optimization therapy. And so, so there's some, some visibility coming for that. It's a very different community than cancer hospitals and VAs. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's interesting to kind of straddle that fence and try to um, deliver a therapy that works in both of those kinds of applications. Amazing. So um, is this uh, your, uh, I, I'm assuming that you've been to Pain Week more than once then? No, this is actually our first time. Um, we go to a sister trade show that's kind of affiliated with Pain Week. Um, and so we learned of Pain Week and this is really our uh, sweet spot in terms of the things we're passionate about, which is um, delivering pain relief and healing with no side effects. And we know most of the pharmacological solutions and other things have some negative side effects. So we can avoid those by doing photobiomodulation. So since this is your first pain week, what do you think of it so far? Um, it's been amazing. The, the quality of the conversations with the people coming to visit, whether they're doctors, nurse practitioners, um, and then the, the volume of VA uh, attendees who are really trying to solve this pain management problem for our vets has been uh, really, really encouraging. We will be back, definitely. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much, Randy. This has been an amazing conversation, and I am thrilled to learn more about Thor and everything that you guys are doing. And um, stay tuned. I'm sure we will be seeing more from you guys. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share. I appreciate it. This is Dr. Christina Madison of the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm here with Dr. Frank Brevy of Opioid Consulting Education Solutions, and he's going to talk a little bit with us about his booth that he has at Pain Week 2021. He is a long-term uh, attendee here and um, also has been a speaker and involved in some of the education pieces here. So, uh, Frank, tell us a little bit more about um, your your two businesses that we were just talking about. Absolutely. Well, I'm a regular here at Pain Week. I come every year. And um, I found out about this conference many years ago from a colleague, Dr. Joe Pergolizzi, who um, is co-chairman here. He was one of the founding uh, members of Pain Week back in the day. So I do a lot of work with Joe. We work on projects. Uh, we do publications together. And, um, and I, I, we do presentations here at Pain Week, educational presentations. So um, I'm here this year for my nonprofit company, which is called Opioid Consulting Educational Solutions. It's a 501c3. And the goal of the company is to um, address issues related to the opioid epidemic with respect to, number one, educating, you know, providing education to healthcare professionals and also to lay people. But my main focus is providing uh, proactive services to any type of healthcare facility or DEA registrant with respect to controlled substances because there are a lot of issues that come up where people get in trouble with the DEA, whether it's uh, theft, whether poor record keeping, any violations of the Controlled Substance Act. Um, 
There's the issues, fines, citations, uh, they can even potentially prison time, uh, and I've seen it. So my company wants to uh, proactively work with organizations to prevent these problems from ever happening by reviewing their systems and processes with respect to controlled substances, uh, doing a gap analysis, looking at the whole chain of custody of, of how they're handling controlled substances to see if there's any weaknesses in that link, whether drugs can be diverted from the waste stream, can drugs be diverted from the procurement process, are drugs diverted from the storage in the Pixis or the Omnicell. So I look at all of that and I make recommendations to ensure that they're following best practices and that their practices will at least minimize this from happening. You're never going to stop it. As long as there's a human element involved, you're going to have drug diversion, but you want to minimize it to the fullest extent possible. So that's basically what I do. I save companies a lot of money. I started out by working reactively for companies who have already been fined that have to go through an MOA or an MOU and meet a compliance plan and uh, working through that to ensure that they're complying with what the DEA wants to get them out of trouble. But I figure, why wait till then when you can do things proactively and prevent that from even ever happening? So that's, that's why. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, uh, the thought process of being uh, proactive versus reactive is extremely important, especially myself. Uh, you know, I deal so much with public health and it's all about prevention. Right. And I think that's so much of, you know, the challenges and the struggles that we have within our healthcare system is that so much of what we do and in particular around pain management is so reactive. And so I think it's really wonderful that you're, you know, getting at the heart of, you know, some of these compliance issues. Can you tell me a little bit more of how someone would go about uh, acquiring your services um, if they did want to get some type of an audit? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, that's why I'm here. Uh, I was hoping to identify potential clients. I've had a few people have come up to me. They want me to review their uh, practices. Believe it or not, uh, I've had several physicians who were concerned about their practice because they're writing prescriptions for controlled substances. And if they're not following best practices, they're not doing it correctly, uh, there can be issues with that. And um, uh, the other thing I'm involved in is expert witness for opioid litigation cases. Uh, I've worked on cases, uh, really horror stories where healthcare professionals, some really, you know, brought it among themselves that, that they were unscrupulous and in it for profit and greed. And really, they, they, they um, got into trouble by uh, trying to, uh, you know, just make money basically off of controlled substances. But there are some individuals who are honest and they just didn't know what the regulations meant or how they should do things or how they should maintain records and what the Controlled Substance Act, you know, requires them to comply with. So that's also an issue. So I, I, I hit it from all different angles. Um, and um, in terms of getting my, my services, I have a website. I, um, I'm starting now that, you know, the COVID seems to be abating somewhat. We've been out of commission for like the last year and a half with conventions. I'm starting to attend some of these conventions and network and see if there's anybody interested. A lot of my work, to be honest with you, has been word of mouth. I mean, I've been working in this area for the last 10 years. I really never promoted myself 
other than oh, I maintain a website. It's been word of mouth. I've done work all over the United States for, for various hospitals and healthcare systems, and I've even done work up in Canada. In British Columbia, I worked for uh, a 31 hospital system to help them with, uh, address some of their controlled substance issues. And the other thing um, I'm looking at is working over in Europe. I'm going to be going out there next month. I'm going to be presenting at Roma Pain Days. And who knows what type of connections we'll be making out there. So... Well, I think it's amazing um, that you're representing the profession of pharmacy so well, and the work that you're doing is so admirable. If there's one thing that we can tell our audience about the benefits of Pain Week and the recap for Pain Week 2021, what would you like to tell our audience? Well, I would tell them that um, attending this conference um, really can provide them with a lot of opportunities just through networking, meeting people. Uh, you'll get ideas as to maybe how you can change your practice, business opportunities. Uh, you never know what to expect. Uh, and I really think the key to success is to get out there and meet people and network and um, come up with new ideas. And that's the, other, that's the whole thing with, with pharmacy. I, there's just so much opportunity. I mean, I, like, I teach over at Temple University School of Pharmacy. I, I teach PY1 students. And, you know, they don't know, you know, where they're going when they graduate. They, they think there's only three things. They think there's retail, there's hospital, and then go into industry. And, but I like to tell them there's so much more than that. There's so much opportunity. I tell them about all the different, you know, areas that I'm familiar with that they can look into. And so that, the, the opportunities are endless. And I think by attending conferences like this, it kind of uh, can can motivate you to just see what's out there. So. so well said. Thank you so much for your time today, Frank. And I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. And I hope that more people will take you up on your services because it is definitely something that is needed. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Christina Madison of the Public Health Pharmacist podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I have another amazing guest with me as part of Pain Week 2021, and I am so excited to hear more about this amazing device. So I'm going to get Richard to introduce himself and his company. Thank you very much. My name is Richard Hanbury. I'm CEO of Sana Health, um, and I'm here with my team uh, presenting at Pain Week. Uh, we have a device that's an audiovisual device, audiovisual neuromodulation uh, for chronic pain. Which, by the way, um, I, I mean, obviously, this is all audio, and I did not know that you had such a lovely speaking voice. So kudos to your team for uh, suggesting that you come on, because I am. I am sure that I speak for my audience when I say that it's delightful. So tell me a little bit about your journey as it relates to, um, you know, pain management and just sort of how you got into um, being part of this. Certainly. Well, so the company name is Sana because uh, the capital of Yemen is Sana. And I was driving near the capital of Yemen in uh, 1992 and I was given a split-second choice of head-on collision next to a petrol truck or to go off a bridge. 
uh, in that split second I realized I had um, that we were both gonna die anyway so if I went off the bridge at least there'd be some remains of my dad to find so I went off a bridge 60 foot down into dry riverbed jeep crumpled up like a coke can and that was TBI uh, spinal injury from THC 10 plus an aortic tear plus a whole bunch of other broken stuff but medevac back to the UK uh, clinically dead for eight minutes including brain dead um, and then into a coma out of a coma and all of that resulted in a nerve damage pain problem um, for which I was given a five-year life expectancy. Um, basically, Christopher Reeve is probably the best-known person with spinal injuries who had um, a break and that level of pain. And once you're in that level of pain, basically your body d can't repair anything because you stay in fight-flight the whole time. Um, and therefore, as things break, you, you can't cover. Um, they put me through the standard of care, which has changed a little bit in 28 years, but not a huge amount. Um, some of the spinal cord stimulators are better than they were back then. Um, but generally, this level of pain and that level of problem doesn't have a solution yet. Um, I got lucky in hospital because, uh, well, first of all, they tried to teach me meditation. Now, meditation has great benefits um, in some parts of um, pain medicine, um, especially if you have people who have episodic pain. So when they're having a good day, if you can teach them how to meditate, you can expand the good periods. Um, but if you're in constant pain and you start teaching someone how to meditate at that point, usually all you do is you make them more aware of how much pain they're actually in, uh, which is what happened to me. So in hospital, I tried that five times. I was like, okay, this is a dumb idea. I'm not going to do this anymore. Then I watched a movie, and the movie flipped me in and out of what we would now call a flow state. And in that process, so as soon as the film was over, I was like, holy crap, that changed my pain levels more than morphine. I was like, huh, and okay, and the bits of the film that made me feel less pain made me feel like I used to when I was skiing. Then I thought, okay, well, if I had meditated all my life, then I would be able to flip in and out of these states at will. So if I could do that, that would be useful. And then I was like, okay, well, if I had meditated all my life, how would my brain look different? And can I create a shortcut? Uh, meditation basically does two different categories of benefit. One is wisdom, which you can shorten by having the right type of meditation, the right type of teacher, um, all sorts of ways you can shorten it, but you can't really shortcut it. The hardware benefit turns out you can actually massively shortcut that process with pulse light and pulse sound, which is what the device does. Um, that took me a while to figure out, but once I had figured it out, it wiped out all of my nerve damage pain in the first three months of use. Um, basically, if you think of all pain as a combination of peripheral pain and the signal coming up from your body and um, central pain, how the brain is actually processing that signal. My type of pain that I had was um, TBI plus SCI, and I didn't really have a pain signal coming out my spinal cord. I had a corrupted data stream, much more similar to a phantom limb. You've just got a missing component, and the brain doesn't know how to deal with it. So generate enough neuroplasticity, and the brain figures out a way around it. Um, so back then, this was all laptops, wires, boxes. Um, there wasn't possible to actually get it used um, by people at home because it was a whole bunch of gear that was really difficult to put together. Uh, fast forward to 2015 when wearables started to become a thing. I started to realize, okay, in a few years I'm going to be able to build what I want. So I restarted the company. Um, various clinical trials, uh, pilots to start off with. Um, focused, there was one of the pilots was fibromyalgia that went really well. Um, and then that became the primary focus of the company at the moment. Um, essentially, someone takes the device, they put it on, um, you know, 
at home, ideally. For the audience um, listening, you can't see it, but um, I will let Richard go ahead and describe it and just say, you know, um, this is so powerful because it's so extraordinarily personal, right? And I think when we start with our why, um, it makes such an impact um, when we're trying to change others' lives. So thank you so much for disclosing all of that to us. But uh, with that being said, please describe your device. Certainly. So the current version um, looks like basically... Uh, a sleeping mask with electronics inside and a hard shell. Uh, the next version of the device will look even more like a sleeping mask with the electronics even softer um, because the best time of use is lasting at night going into sleep because if you improve sleep, you improve all pain and mental health outcomes um, pretty much across the board. Um, anyway, so someone picks it up, they put it on, and they adjust the brightness and volume to suit what is comfortable for them. And then through closed eyes, they're they're, they're seeing um, a very gentle pulsing of light and hearing a pulsing of sound in the ear through headphones. And that then is producing a very deep relaxation state in um, under 16 minutes. 16 minutes is standard length of time. Um, Most people are doing this late at night are asleep by the time they finish. Um, And yeah, so the first pilot uh, the first part on fibromyalgia, we got a 45% improvement in quality of life. Um, that was in two weeks. It was uh, a one-arm study, but we've had duration of effect now for over a year. 17 out of the 20 people on the study chose to carry on using the device, and they're all still using, on average, once a day, um, maintaining all the results they got in those first two weeks. Um, now we're in a pivotal study um, to go through the FDA, um, and we have breakthrough status. So hopefully, once we're through the FDA, we have CMS reimbursement. Um, we are talking. Uh, so we've had discussions with um, the Medicaid um, Office of Innovation, uh, Care Innovation, something. Oh, I'm going to get the name wrong. Sorry, but it's Care Innovation. Um, and yeah, because fibromyalgia is 10 million Americans. Um, diagnosed, and the profile is largely white, middle-class, middle-aged, and older. Now, everyone who deals with fibromyalgia knows that trauma plays a very large part of it. Um, Nearly everyone that we've dealt with has been either PTSD diagnosed or undiagnosed. Um, We know that trauma is directly related to socioeconomic status and therefore um, the poorer the community is, the more likely there is to be more trauma and therefore the more likely they are to actually have fibromyalgia, but probably largely undiagnosed for the fact that it takes the average fibromyalgia patient five physicians before they'll get a diagnosis. And if you haven't got the resources to go to five different physicians, you haven't got a diagnosis. So one of the challenges for us is, okay, well, we can, once we've got a designation, so once we have an approval and once we have reimbursement for fibromyalgia, we can reach the people who can afford it. Then the question is, how do we spread that so that people who haven't gone through those five physicians to get their diagnosis can also have access to care? And the way in which we're hoping to do that is to show that any pain where anxiety is a factor, we can help. So basically, if someone goes to a physician and says, I have pain, and the physician goes, okay, you have anxiety as a part of that, so let's try and take care of the anxiety, and then I'll see what other symptoms are left and then how we deal with those. And start with a non-drug option that basically helps improve lots of things because it's helping anxiety and sleep. Um, 
and you know if you see the social determinants of health and I mean cognitive behavioral therapy if you think about that model of um, you have the stimulus and then you have your uh, uh, your interpretation of it and then you have your um, how you feel about it if you can lower anxiety you're going to have a better interpretation in the first place you're going to make that whole cycle into a virtuous one and hopefully help people um, and there's a the, the last bit of it is around agency so what we typically seen and saw in the pilot data is about a 30% drop in opioids over time and a lot of people talk to us about oh you just you gave me more choices you gave me more control back and people are choosing in real time do I want to take an opioid that is going to give me better pain relief but I'm not necessarily going to be conscious and with it with my family or working or driving or whatever it is or do I want to use a device that maybe gives me less than my high dose opioids less pain relief but allows me to do other things so in real time people get to choose what's the right tool to deal with what I'm dealing with right at this moment and that's 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 where we really really hope to help yeah that's the sweet spot right I am just I love everything that you're saying for so many reasons um, the first is that um, as a public health uh, advocate and supporter I am a big fan of prevention as well as non-pharmacologic interventions and so the fact that there's something that may be available to help someone to reduce their dependency on um, opioids and or um, substances for pain relief I think is huge um, but I think the biggest thing that I took away from what you just said is the um, possible utilization in people who've experienced trauma. So my personal practice, I um, deal with um, a lot of people who identify in the LGBTQ community, and I come from a place of trauma-informed care with so many of my patients. Um, and then also I'm on the board of a nonprofit here in Las Vegas called Biashiro Foundation that helps women and girls who've been victims of sex trafficking and human trafficking. And so I see this in so many different lives. Um, of utilization and and just I'm so grateful that you brought it here to Pain Week and obviously you know the impetus from it came from your own um, pain and suffering but you should be commended for so much of what you're doing to help others and so if there's anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with about benefits of of non-pharmacologic agents as well as working with others uh, interdisciplinary care I'm a pharmacist but I think it takes a village to help everyone and just why you um, are enjoying pain week I think that would be a great way to leave off this interview certainly um, well we were very lucky last week to get awarded a DOD grant for um, PTSD um, so we will be starting uh, a clinical trial in PTSD um, quite shortly. Um, so that, that, that's exciting. And basically anything that can reduce anxiety is going to have a positive impact on um, everything, pretty much every type of pain and every type of mental health disorder. Um, so if people are out there um, in pain, physical or mental, um, you know, one of the questions to ask is what is available to me that can lower my anxiety because even any small step you know whether it's talking to a friend doing a journal all of those things add up and so that's sort of central role of reducing anxiety um, and improving sleep uh, anybody can take steps in their life to do those two things so that's that's kind of like that's that would be my takeaway and from the conference 
there, there's, there's a lot of good things here on the device side and on the psychology side and on the um, CBT side. Um, the biosocial, uh, psychosocial model of pain gets mentioned in almost every lecture that is non-drug. And so far I've been into four drug lectures and it hasn't been mentioned once. So it is kind of a little bit sad that the drug um, people here haven't caught up with what everyone else is saying. Um, but hopefully they will in time um, because the, the drugs are a necessary part of the, the toolkit and I don't think they're going to integrate with the toolkit until they start thinking about it as a toolkit. So that's my hope for the coming years, that the things that everyone else has realized that hopefully that will get into the drug mindset in the future. Um, that's my hope. Well, I definitely uh, know that the people from Pain Week are likely to hear this. So uh, hopefully that uh, message will resonate with them. And again, thank you so much for your time, Richard. This was um, such a treat. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to talk with you today. And best of luck with, um, you know, all of the, the business's future endeavors. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing hopefully a FDA approval in your future and more utilization of this modality. And hopefully we'll be able to help more people. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're, we're on market already as under a 513 GO as a wellness label. And uh, people can go to the website if they want to find out more about us at www.sana.io. And if you'd like to come and um, have a demo uh, tomorrow, or you can come and have a nap. Here, here. I, I think I, uh, I, I need to end this interview. All right. Thanks, everyone. Um, stay tuned for more Pain Week 2021. Hello. It is Dr. Christina Madison of the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I have the pleasure of interviewing a pain psychologist. I am so excited um, because, again, um, something that's been really important here at Pain Week 2021 is, is really integration of the this model around, um, you know, other factors that may impacting, um, you know, people's pain how we care for them and, um, you know, how we can have other people that are part of the interdisciplinary team that can really help. And so I have Shamin here and we are going to talk a little bit about how she uh, started coming to Pain Week and, you know, what is one of the things that she's most enjoyed and um, what she's looking forward to in the rest of the conference. Wonderful. So nice to meet you, and thank you for having me on your podcast. So I'm Dr. Shamin Ladani. I'm a clinical pain psychologist. I've been practicing since 2005. I've been coming to Pain Week for more than five years, but you know the last two years have been virtual, so I haven't been here, but I have definitely come multiple times. What I'm really like happy about when it comes to pain week is they always have pain psychologists as their faculty and a lot of what the pain psychologists talk about is how do you integrate psychosocial and behavioral components in chronic pain and it's been nice to see that one thing that was really exciting to me this year was that I saw Dr. Zakharov talk about stigma and bias in managing chronic pain. I feel like that is the first time anybody has ever spoke about stigma um, and sort of like implicit and explicit bias in pain management, which is 
ridiculously huge when it comes to pain management patients. And I can tell you as a pain psychologist, one of the biggest things that my patients talk to me about is the fact that they feel that they are being judged, that they are not sure that their doctors believe that they have pain. That um, one of the things he said that like, I mean, literally light bulb in my head, but totally my patients like, I need to show up in the clinic looking my best. But then if I look my best, clearly I don't have pain. So should I look awful? Should I have a cane? Which is not what we want our patients to do. We want to sort of honor where they are and experience what they experience as they say it. And what I always tell all of my patients is pain is an invisible illness and that what they tell me is exactly what it is. And I will always believe what they have to say. I don't care about the pain scale. I care about how it feels to them. And we need to do a better job of like really listening to our patients and believing where they're at instead of looking at them as like, what are they wearing? How do they walk into this clinic? What are their experiences? Like, if they tell me it's a 9 out of 10, then it's a 9 out of 10. That's their experience. And so I'll ask them more about why it's a 9 out of 10 for them. How does it interfere in their life? Tell me how they're suffering, which suffering is like a construct that's different than just having pain. Because when you have pain, pain is one thing, but suffering is like a completely separate construct of how do you suffer from the pain that you have? How does it like get, a, get in the way of interacting with family. I think the biggest thing I see, like probably the number one goal from some of my patients, like I just want to interact with my grandchildren or my children. And so it just breaks my heart. So I really look at my patients as a whole person and try to take them where they're at and really believe them. I mean, I walk into a patient visit like that, like, hey, you probably are like, oh my God, I'm being sent to a pain psychologist. Like they don't believe me. It's all in my head. Clearly now they think my pain is psychological. And I always tell them, I just, I just want to dispel that myth right away that all I do is work with patients that have real pain. So I want you to walk in this room knowing that whatever you tell me your pain is, it is. And I'm going to believe you. And you don't have to worry about me thinking it's in your head because I'm going to help you with what's in your head because pain affects you in that way. And I believe you completely. And that really like opens up the dialogue between me and the patient and being able to talk openly with them. Absolutely. And I'm going to quote Maya Angelou because she says this all the time. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. So I applaud you for believing your patients and for not profiling them when they come to you. Um, as a woman of color, um, I have experienced discrimination as it relates to pain, um, and it's hard. And even as a pharmacist and being able to advocate for myself, um, I was still, you know, denied care. And I think that's part of why it's so important to educate not only ourselves as clinicians, but our colleagues and the public, because that's part of public health is the health of the many. And until we can start educating people that pain is real and that what people are experiencing is real, we are never going to be able to get at the heart of the matter. I agree wholeheartedly. And it's what they tell us. We need to listen to them and not decide what they're experiencing is not real. And our imaging studies, the things that we do, I have had many doctors tell me, I can do 
like 15 people in the room. It's going to be different experiences. And this one person is going to experience pain where I'm going to think somebody else should. So why would that be our measure of why someone has pain? Like we need to look at all the socioeconomic, psychological, family dynamics that exist for that patient and how they're trying to function. And so if they are working full time and they are dressed and they are in the clinic, however they meet, that does not mean they don't have pain. They may be just trying to keep it together. And so we have to listen to them and validate their experiences and treat them for what they have and not decide based on their skin color, their socioeconomic status, their insurer. Oh my God, that drives me nuts. Like they're insurer that this is just why they're here in our clinic. And I, I do my best because I think psychology for patients, especially some of our like patients of color, like they haven't had a lot of exposure to psychology and mental health. And we're trying to do a better job of like educating our people of color about mental health and that it's something that's important. It's stigmatized. If I'm in that, they're not gonna believe that I have a real physical pain condition. And I have many men and women that I treat that totally get it and some that feel worried about the stigma associated with seeing a pain psychologist. So I really try to spend a lot of time educating the them about how I kind of cross over between medicine and psychology, and I'm here to kind of treat you for your pain condition, but we can also work on all these other dynamics that you're dealing with that exist because of your pain, the depression you feel because you can't do the things you could do before. When you get angry and you lash out at people in your life and you don't mean to, but you're in extreme pain. When you can't remember something and you're supposed to remember it, it's because pain has affected your brain, but it doesn't mean that the pain is all in your head. And I will never tell a patient that I work with that the pain is all in their head. You'll get nothing but complete and total presence from me because people need us to bear witness to their process. And that's what we're here to do as providers. That's amazing. Um, So, you know, I think some of our listeners may not be as familiar with the concept of uh, a pain psychologist. If someone wanted to find out more information about your specialty and about your discipline and kind of um, how this should be something that's integrated into pain management, um, what resources would you recommend that they look into to find out more information about what you do? That's a wonderful question. So there isn't like sort of a pain psychology organization. There's not a health or medical psychology organization. So what I really, actually one organization that I do some work with that I think is really great is the U.S. Pain Foundation, which is uspainfoundation.org. And I have volunteered with them and I've done several talks. They're very supportive of utilizing sort of behavioral health approaches to pain. So at least if you went to their website, you would see that it's not just sort of a physical aspect and how people utilize it. They actually have amazing support groups for people that have pain. So that would be something that I would suggest. Um, um, like a simple, like stated uh, like opinion is Google pain psychologist. I hate to say it like so simply, but you'll see many people will come up. There aren't a lot of us. Like I'm literally at this conference and I can't tell you how many times I've met a physician who's like, do you want to come here? Do you want to come there? We really need you. And so the, so we are a bit of a minority, but if you go to major medical centers, so um, one sort of key that I tell a lot of patients is if they are like sort of attending a talk that I do that's more national, go to a major medical center, go into a pain clinic, 
almost always they have a pain psychologist. It's a pretty like core foundation of major medical centers. There are some private practice pain psychologists. Um, I certainly would say any sort of board associated with the state, like the Illinois Psychological Association, where I'm from, California Psychological Association, wherever a psych association you go to, you can go to them asking for requests for people that specialize in pain, and that might be a good starting point too. Well, this has been just such a lovely conversation. And thank you so much for educating our listeners about pain psychology and how it can be utilized. If there was any parting um, notes or words that you'd like to leave our listeners with, um, just how you see the future of pain management and helping others and, and really helping with that stigma and caring for vulnerable populations, what would you like to leave us with? Wonderful question. So I guess I would say a couple things. Number one I would say is that medication is useful. It's not the enemy, even though it's being sort of stigmatized in that sense. We do need medication. I, as a pain psychologist, I'm prescribed, but I don't think that it's the wrong thing to do. But I want you to understand that it's not the only thing and that treating pain means that we have to layer things. And then if we layer things like having a psychologist, going to a physical therapist, seeing an acupuncturist, massage therapist, chiropractic care, that the more things that we layer on top of treating our pain is going to help us get to a better place. And that if you are a person who's marginalized or a person of color that is really trying to get that care, that I want you to know that there are people out here that are thinking about you and that want to help you. And that even if you get poor care by somebody, you do need to keep looking for that care. Don't stop. Don't think you can't seek somebody else. Don't worry that you're going to be labeled as drug-seeking because we are there and we know that you're important too and we want to make sure you get the right care that you need. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for what you do. And uh, again, this was such a pleasure. Uh, Please uh, stay tuned for more of uh, Pain Week 2021. And um, this has just been such a pleasure. I've learned so much from all of the different interviews that I've given this week. And uh, uh, continue to keep listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.